the Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. This morning I want to begin before we jump into our text. I have a biblical truth that I would like for you to ponder this morning before we get started. I have a lot to get through this morning, Um, so bear with me. Don't only bear with me, but incline your ear to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Um, we, we enjoy the scriptures at the Way City Church. Amen? And we're excited about the scriptures, um, so we have a bit to get through. But I want to begin with a biblical truth for you to ponder. And it starts with a question. And I want to ask you, do you know what the greatest divide is on the earth? The greatest divide on the earth. Or perhaps I should say the the greatest divide takes place on the earth. Do you know what it is? Let me begin by helping you. Let me begin by telling you what it is not. The greatest divide upon the earth is not the divide between white people and black people. The greatest divide upon the earth is not between Asians and Latinos. The greatest divide upon the earth is not between the rich and the poor. The greatest divide upon the earth is not between communism and capitalism. The greatest divide upon the earth is not between Republican and Democrat. The greatest divide upon the earth is not between Donald J. Trump and Joseph R. Biden. The greatest divide upon the earth is the divide between the lost and the saved. The greatest divide upon the earth is the divide between the righteous and the unrighteous. The greatest divide upon the earth, upon the earth is the divide between the, the believer and the unbeliever. The greatest divide upon the earth is the divide between light and darkness. That is the greatest divide upon the earth. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So then I find it very interesting and also tragic that some of you are searching for something in politics that you are not seeking for in Christ Jesus. In fact, some of you believe that you have found something in politics that you don't believe is available for you in 
Christ Jesus. And what is that thing? It's love and acceptance and unity. And it's interesting to me that some of you believe that you have more in common. Pay attention here. It's very interesting to me that some of you believe that you have more in common with an unbeliever that shares your political values than you do with a believer that disagrees with your political values. That's very interesting to me. That some of you have, have more in common. You feel like you have more in common with an unbeliever that agrees with you politically than you find in common with a believer that disagrees with you politically. Can you see it, church? And I pray and I hope that you can see it. The American church is in error. And the political system has, for many, become an idol. It's become idolatry to many. 1 Corinthians 12 clearly tells us that if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, then we are a part of the same body. Say, same body. The same body. We are a part of the same body. Not a different body, but we are a part of the same body. Body, Christ's body. Yet it seems to me as though many Christians and many believers love and have more love for and have more respect for a member of an entirely different body than they do the members of their own body. Or I should say than they do the members of the body that they are attached to, which is Christ's body. Some people then, I believe, are being used unknowingly to divide the body of Christ with their politics. And I know exactly what I'm talking about here because politics have not only divided the world, but it really has truly also in some ways divided the church. So I know exactly what I'm addressing this morning. You have Christ's body and you have your political body. And I want to ask you this morning and for you online, Christ's body and your political body, which one do you most identify with? Which one do you identify with most? And you cannot be loyal and committed to both. For in doing so, you will offend or Divide one of those bodies and let it not be Christ's body that you divide or offend, for you will have to answer to him in doing so. I want to remind you today before we get into our text that Christ came to bring a sword. Matthew 10 and verse 34, Christ came to bring a sword to make a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. This is the greatest divide on the earth. And it's one that's done by Jesus Christ himself with a spiritual sword. So I then pray this morning that we all would find more in common 
more love, that we would have more love and that we would have more unity with other believers, that you will spend all eternity within heaven, then you seek to find with the ungodly who you will have no part with. Jesus said in John 13 and verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So in the midst of a divided world, I want to call us all this morning to come back to the truths found in the body of Christ and let us love each other well before we attempt to love the world. Amen, church? Someone posted this quote on social media and I copied it because it was good. It's from Mark Dever. And Mark Dever said this, As for us today, I don't know all the spiritual forces and social changes at work in and among the nations. But I do know that if God's people are undisciplined and indistinct from the people around them, it would seem that God has little incentive to grant religious liberty to churches that mislead the world about what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word as we get into Isaiah chapter 6. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would speak to us all this morning that's gathered together in this place and for those that are home joining us online. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would capture our hearts, that you would arrest us by your spirit, that you would show us, Lord, your glory, that you would show us your holiness. I pray that we would see what Isaiah saw. I pray that none of us would leave this place in the same way that we came. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for transformation. And Father, we do come against and destroy every distraction in this place today, every distraction at home today. And I pray that our hearts and minds will be inclined to truly hear what the Spirit of God is saying to our church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's turn to Isaiah 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. 
and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Some of us were joking about smoke this morning. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your Iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The land has, the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump. Amen. I titled this message today A Clear Vision After the Death of a King. A clear vision after the death of a king. And I want to ask you this morning, what are you looking at? Let me give you some context real quick. The book of Isaiah was written in the year 740 BC. Isaiah was a prophet who addressed the kingdom of Judah for 40 years beginning in the year that King Uzziah died again, which was the year 740 BC, and he continued prophesying through to the Assyrian siege in 701 BC. Now, Assyria was no joke. They were a major political power of the day. And they were located towards the, the north of Israel, and they were planning to and did eventually invade the land of Israel. The book was written during a time very similar to us, a time of unrest and political uncertainty. Only what Israel faced back then was a lot, lot worse than where we are today. Now, in the midst of the turmoil, the Lord pulls Isaiah aside, says, come over here, I want to show you something. 
And what God shows Isaiah, he also wants us to see this morning. In the midst of our questions and political unrest. So he pulls Isaiah aside and he says, I want to show you something. Moving on, our text takes place again in the year 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died. Who was Uzziah? King Uzziah was a good king, and he was a godly king. A good king and a godly king. If I was doing a study on the kings, I'd tell you that there were 40-plus kings in the land of uh, Judah and Israel, and there were only several of them, I think, maybe seven, um, that were actually good kings that did right in the eyes of the Lord. So King Uzziah was one of those kings that was a good king and a godly king. Second Chronicles 26.4 tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And verse 5 says, He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who was the prophet of the day, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Uzziah was the king of Judah and reigned on the throne politically for 52 years. He became king when he was 16 years old. And he reigned 52 years as king in Judah. Ecclesiastes 10:16 tells us, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And verse 17 says, Blessed are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Uzziah was a good king of noble birth in the sense that his father also was a good king, Amaziah, which is rare. Out of all of the kings, not to get off of topic here, but out of all of the kings, many times we would see, even with the good kings, that their children were not good kings, which is sad. Uzziah, there was something very different with his line. Amaziah, his father, was a good king. Uzziah was a good king. And then his son, Jotham, was also a good king, which is very unusual for three generations. So he was a good king. Uzziah built great infrastructure and fortified all that he built. Under Uzziah's reign, the, the land produced and, and flourished and, and, and prospered, you could say. He also provided many jobs for the people as he loved and as he took care of the land that he was steward over. Uzziah had a very disciplined and mighty army. And he took good care of his army. He, he built them amazing weapons, probably the best weapons of the day. And they were loyal and faithful to him. He waged war against the enemies of God, against the, the Philistines. And he broke down the, the mighty walls of Gath, the Bible tells us, and Jabna and Ashdod, who were the enemies of God. So he was a mighty king. The Bible says that God himself helped Uzziah in war. And he made not only the, the greatest weapons during his day, but the Bible speaks about he, he invented things, new devices for his land. And his fame, the Bible says, continued 
to spread far and wide. So he was a very popular king, very liked, very well-known. And the Bible says that he became exceedingly strong. And as I said, not only was he a good king, but his son, he trained him up in the way he should go, and his son, too, was a good king. Unfortunately, Uzziah, towards the end of his life, there was some pride that entered his heart, and the Bible says that he went into the holy places of the Lord and tried to burn incense there, which he was not ordained to burn. That was for the priests of the Lord. And Azariah was the priest of the day, and he confronted Uzziah and told him, this is wrong. And 80 other priests confronted him and said, no, this is not for you. And Uzziah was arrogant and didn't accept correction. So the Lord struck him with leprosy and he died as a leper, which is unfortunate. However, he was a good king that messed up. And I'm saying that because Scripture places him among the good kings. And he was well-loved by the people, and he led the land exceptionally well. So, some context. This great king, Uzziah, has just died. After 52 years of being on the throne, he's dead. He's died. He's famous, he's loved, he's gone. He'll no longer be ruling over our beloved land. So now there are so many questions. What happens next? What happens now? What will the future be like? What will the next leader be like? What kind of leader and influencer will there be for our children? There are all these questions that Israel is facing. And the text this morning takes us on Isaiah's journey. And we're going to follow that road and that path. And it's a very clear journey. And we're going to see in our text this morning that Isaiah goes from confession to cleansing to commissioning. The text leads us from Isaiah going from Confession to cleansing to commissioning. And that's what I'm going to walk you through this morning. But that journey, that journey can only begin with a vision from the Lord. As we look in detail at this chapter, we will see quickly and clearly the present chapter moves us from first a vision of the Lord. Say, a vision of God. A vision of God. Let's say it together, church. A vision of God. Amen. So, Isaiah, he first sees God in verses 1 through 4. He has a vision of God. This is a vision from God, of God. In verses 1 through 4, he sees God. Verse 5, we see Isaiah's confession of sin. Verse 6 and 7, we see his cleansing. And finally, verses 8 through 13, we see his commissioning, his being sent. 
Isaiah's experience in this chapter shows Israel the way. And it also shows us the way this morning. So let's go. The vision of God, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that. It all begins with vision. What are you looking at this morning? The vision here is from God of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Verse 1 is probably my favorite verse in the entire chapter, and I was tempted this morning to just dwell right here on verse 1 because it is that good. Verse 1 is all that. Verse 1 is, is, is packed with instruction and with wisdom. But I decided, since verse 1 is taking us on a journey... I decided not to end at the beginning, but for us to follow the, the train of thought that God would have us to be on. But verse 1 is beautiful. The very first thing that I see, the very first thing that Isaiah sees is the Lord. In this vision, the very first thing that he sees is the Lord. It's a vision from God, of God. It's interesting to me that Isaiah right here, he does not see the Lord until the king dies. Isaiah doesn't see the Lord until the king dies. In chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah, he's describing the people that live in Judah and Jerusalem, and now everything changes for him in chapter 6. He, he's speaking about the land and the people in the first five chapters. Now, in chapter 6, everything changes for him. And he sees the Lord, the great king Uzziah has died, and now for the first time, Isaiah sees clearly And what he sees is he sees the Lord. And that's a prophetic word for someone this morning. You and I will always struggle to see God when our eyes is on a man. We will always struggle to see him when our eyes is fixed upon a man. And even good leaders sometimes can cloud our vision. Not because of them, but because of us. Not because of wrongdoing from them, but because of the view that we have of them. Expecting them to give us something that only God can give. 
Sometimes the thing that we have been looking at or looking for is not the thing that God wants us to see. And I truly pray that as President Donald Trump steps down from his office on Wednesday, I pray that there would be an enlightening from the Holy Spirit of God to the church. And that you would see the Lord like never before. I pray that as he steps down, that there would be an enlightening by the Spirit of God to the church and that you would see God, that you would see the Lord like never before. For four years, every single day for four years, the eyes of Americans have been upon the president. Fox News, CNN, and probably every other news network. And CNN was obsessed with the man, to be quite honest. And hardly reported on anything else in four years but him. And I said that, and I'm saying that to say in our context, as people that live in America, you cannot deny the fact that our eyes have focused entirely on the president for the past four years, whether for good or for evil. But we cannot deny the fact, as those living here in America, that for the past four years, our eyes has been fixed and focused every single day, whether for good or for bad, but our eyes have been fixed upon the president. So my prayer is that you will not repeat the same mistakes for the next four years when President Joe Biden becomes president, when president-elect becomes president. I pray that for the next four years that pattern would not be repeated. Amen, church. Amen. I pray. The people during that day would have been worried and concerned about their future. And some of you and some online and some that will listen to this message are concerned about the future of America. Some are glad and some are sad. But the people during that day, they, they would have been worried and concerned about their future. Their king was dead. And even King, and even the, the, even king Uzziah would have known. Even the prophet Isaiah would have known that, man, this is a tricky time. And maybe even the prophet would have been thinking, man, what's the future of our land look like. So God says, Isaiah, let me show you something real quick. And God reveals to Isaiah what he wants to reveal to Israel. Okay, so he pulls Isaiah aside because he has a message for Israel. So he reveals it first to Isaiah so Isaiah can reveal it to Israel. God knows that if Isaiah gets this message, he will carry it faithfully to the people of the land. So God shows Isaiah himself. He reveals to him his glory. 
And then Isaiah becomes a good steward of that revelation. And he, at the end of the chapter, says, Lord, I want to go and tell people about this that I've seen and this that I have heard. So what have you been looking at this past, this past week? What have you been focusing upon? God wants us this morning as a church to look solely upon Him. Hebrews 12.2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every single weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So when Isaiah looks to God in this vision, what does he see? He sees the sovereign king is seated. When Isaiah looks to God, what does he see? He sees that the sovereign king is seated. I want you to say that with me this morning. Say, the sovereign king is seated. The sovereign king is seated. Let's say it together, church. The sovereign king is seated. He's seated. This posture of our king is not insignificant in any way, by any means. Notice that God is not pacing. He's not sweating. He's not calling an emergency meeting with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He is seated. He's at peace. And where is He seated? The Bible says here, on His throne. Man, I, I, I love this. The, the throne represents God's rule and His authority. And Isaiah sees the Lord and he sees Him seated, and he sees Him seated upon His throne. It is here where Isaiah clearly sees the sovereignty of God. God is seated on His throne, and it is high the Bible says, and lifted up above every other throne, above every other king, every other lord, every other god. His throne is high and lifted up. And from his throne, he looks down upon the earth. He looks down upon the universe from his throne. He looks down upon kings and rulers. He looks down upon them. And they must look up to him. So Isaiah looks up. And Isaiah sees that every single ruler and king is subject to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
is subject to God. He's sovereign over the land. And the earthly king is dead. And that's what little earthly kings do, church. Little earthly kings die. And then they're replaced. God appoints new ones. And I can assure you this morning that God, let me be clear this morning that God is seated and God was seated four years ago when when Trump became president. God was seated. Trump is still president and God is seated. Joe Biden will become president and God will still be seated on the throne. He's not worried or concerned about anything. And we, his people, should be the same. For he is our king. He is our Lord. Amen? So in this vision, it's crystal clear that Isaiah, first, he sees the sovereignty of God. The next thing that Isaiah sees is he sees the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is the only place in the Bible where the, the seraphim, angelic beings are mentioned by name. It's the only place. There are other places in the Bible that, that, that describe the seraphim, but do not mention them by name. The seraphim, they fly about the throne where God is seated. And they sing His praises, and they call special attention to God's holiness, and to His glory, and to His majesty. They also served as agents of purification for Isaiah, as we'll see later on in the text. The Bible says they have six wings, but they only need two to fly. With two wings, they cover their faces, probably because of the radiance of the glory of God. And with the other two, they cover their feet. Now, the feet, many times in the Scriptures and in the Old Testament, were the profane thing, or they were known as unclean. So with two wings, they cover their eyes, and with the other two wings, they cover their feet. And everything in the seraphim's being cries out, holy. Everything in their being cries out, holy. And everything in their being spontaneously responds to the holiness of God. Everything in their body cries out, holy. Not just their voices, but their actions too. When they cover their faces and they cover their feet. He's too holy to look upon. And he's too holy for my feet to be uncovered before him. And as you become familiar with the scriptures, you can't help but notice that when the Bible wants to stress a point, it will usually repeat a thing twice. And if you haven't already noticed, I do that often when I'm teaching. In fact, Jesus is the master of this method. 
when he really wanted people to get a point across, when he really wanted them to pay attention to a specific truth, he would say, verily, verily, or, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Now what we read in verse 3 is very, very, very rare. And this is the only time there is a threefold repetition of the word holy in the entire Old Testament. This is the only time. And this only ever happens once more in Scripture, and that's in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. So only two times in Scripture, once in the Old and once in the New, do we have a threefold repetition of the word holy. Holy, 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 the seraphim cried. Thrice holy. This is also known as the trihagion. In Jewish culture, it was customary that when something was repeated three times, it was always intentionally done in order to stress a point, to stress a truth, and to elevate that thing above all. This is the only attribute of God, TWCC. Pay attention here. This is the only attribute that we know is on repeat for every single moment in heaven. Revelation 4 and verse 8. The Bible says, day and night, the four creatures around the throne, they cry out, holy. This is the only attribute of God that we know is on repeat for every single moment of every single day in heaven. Holy means separation. In fact, the Hebrew word is a word called kadosh, and it means sacred or to be set apart. I don't know what you see when you look at God, but what Isaiah saw when he looked at God, when all of the veils was removed from his eyes and he could see clearly, what Isaiah saw and what God wanted him to see was his holiness. So I don't know what you see when you look at God and any one of those things where, you know, well, well, you know we kind of see different things when we see God. You know, I see his, you know, I see this and I see that. God wants us above all. I can declare that as truth this morning. God has many attributes. But he wants us above all to see his holiness. Isaiah saw and heard everything that God wanted him to see and hear. So Isaiah, he's doing great here. He's on the mountaintop. Can you imagine? Isaiah, he's on the mountaintop. He's receiving these divine revelations from the Lord. He's at the, the holy conference for, for visions and revelation. 
and he's having an amazing time. He's just seen the holiness of God. He's on cloud nine. He's ecstatic. He's euphoric. He's enraptured. And then suddenly the text shifts and the atmosphere changes. The temperature drops rapidly. Sugar crash. The body is in shock. And verse number five takes place. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Wow. The conference is over. I've come down from my high. And now I'm at home. And reality hits. Woe is me. Woe is me. God is not about the hype. He showed me all that he did. And the key part of his plan in showing me himself was that I would see me. God didn't even mention anything to Isaiah about his sin. He just showed Isaiah a glimpse of his holiness. And Isaiah, the Bible says, became undone. God didn't even speak to Isaiah about his sin. He just showed him a glimpse of his holiness. And Isaiah said, I am undone. He unraveled and fell apart in the presence of a holy God. Woe. This is a word of lamentation. It's a passionate cry of distress for the one that is overwhelmed with deep sorrow and grief. Isaiah is ultimately saying in his cry for help, he's saying, I'm desolate, afflicted, suffering, tormented, I'm gloomy, I'm in anguish, and I am in pain. And he's saying, I'm finished, and there is no hope for me. This is the worst day of Isaiah's life. This type of, of language of, of woe, prophets usually use to speak against the, the people of the land. And Isaiah is using this language to speak against himself. And he's saying, woe is I. Woe is me. And it's here, church, if you haven't seen it already, but it is here where Isaiah clearly sees his sin. He clearly sees his sin. But the only way that he's able to see his sin is because he first sees the holiness of God. And isn't that kind of like how the Ten Commandments work? Isn't it? We, we, we see God's standard and when God's standard is placed next to mine, it makes me unravel 
and makes me want to disappear. For I am scum and I am filth when I stand next to a holy God. Isaiah never forgets this truth. This is chapter 6, and Isaiah receives this revelation. And at the end of the book, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. At the end of the book in Isaiah chapter 64, we see Isaiah, and he's still speaking this message. And Isaiah 64 and verse 6, Isaiah says, But we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So Isaiah is now in the presence of perfection, and now all of a sudden he can see his sin like never before he sees it. His eyes are open and he sees it clearly. I am a sinner. And his response to God's holiness is spontaneous. Isaiah looks at himself and he looks at God's holiness and he says, ah, it's just spontaneous. And he says, whoa, is me out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's all Isaiah can say is, woe is me. He says, I am undone, he goes on to say. And he keeps on going, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah realized for the first time that he has a filthy mouth. Isaiah gets another revelation in the presence of God, and he's like, man, my mouth is, is unclean. The way that I speak is unclean. And Isaiah, he sees it now. He, he sees his sins specifically. And he's like, man, my, my mouth is, my, my mouth, my lips, my tongue is poison. He never saw that before. But now he sees it. R.C. Sproul says, as long as Isaiah compared himself to, to other people, he was able to see himself as a man of integrity. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, his sense of integrity completely collapsed. And he saw himself as falling apart. R.C. Sproul summarizes Isaiah's experience that day this way. He was in pure moral anguish. The kind that rips out the heart of a man and tears his soul to pieces. Guilt, guilt, guilt. Relentless guilt screamed from his every pore. He sees his sin. Isaiah provides for us here a clear picture of reality. And Pastor Will Klotz, who, by the way, inspired me for this message, he shared this message with, um, he shared Isaiah 6 with his church 
um, on election, election day, we had met and he told me he was gonna speak from Isaiah 6. Um, and I was like, man, Isaiah 6, man, it, it was so, so relevant back then for election day and I saved this and studied this this week and, and saved it for now as we're getting ready for the transition on Wednesday of, uh, uh, of a new president. Um, but Will Klotz, Pastor Will, said this, Isaiah provides for us a clear picture of reality. And if we can see reality as clear as Isaiah did on this day, then you would understand that your greatest problem is not political. It is personal. Consciousness of sin always begins with seeing God. Consciousness of sin always begins with seeing God. Isaiah sees his sin again specifically. He acknowledges his filthy mouth. James 1.26 says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James 3 speaks about we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body Look also at ships, although they are also large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. We've learned that. um, Even in politics, we've learned that. Your words make things happen. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Isaiah saw that. Like he's never seen it before. He's like, my mouth. Verse 6 and 7. Cleansing. Isaiah sees, this is all a vision from God. But in the beginning, he sees a vision from God, of God. He sees the Lord. Then he sees his sin, and he confesses his sin. Now is the cleansing. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Wow. This is the best day of Isaiah's life. 
Isaiah was broken. And, and, and I, I, I hope and I pray that we all would come to the same level of brokenness from our sin that Isaiah felt. Sometimes you hear people talk about their testimony. You know, I don't have a testimony. Everyone has a testimony. And if you don't feel like you have a testimony, then you really haven't met God. You haven't. We're not here to compare testimonies. But listen, when you see God's holiness, it's spontaneous. You cry out, you weep, you, you fall before him and you acknowledge your sin. And then when he cleanses you, he purifies you, greatest feeling in the world. That's what happened to me when I was 19 years old. I saw my sin and was broken. And whenever I go back to England, there, there are always friends that, that remind me, old friends that remind me of my acting career. They're like, man, but you could have... It's nothing. My life, when I saw who he was and what he did, my life was nothing. It was scum before him. And then when he forgave me and I was cleansed, I received something that the world couldn't give to me. I received something that money couldn't give to me. I received something that fame couldn't give to me. And Isaiah right here, it's the best day of his life. He's cleansed. And notice how, how the seraphim takes a live coal from the altar of God and he places it on Isaiah's mouth. Isaiah was aware and conscious of, of the sin of his mouth. And the angel came and, and touched his mouth and, and burned away that sin. That's what it was symbolic of. It was a cleansing, a purification. Isaiah, you have become undone. You are broken because of your sin. You have a filthy mouth. The way that you like to talk and joke and curse and whatever, whatever, whatever. And he touched his mouth. And forgave his sin. Isaiah's greatest comfort was found in his forgiveness. I want you to understand that. His greatest comfort. Yes, the, the sovereignty of God was, was great and is good. But Isaiah's greatest comfort came from not God being sovereign alone. His greatest comfort came from this sovereign God forgave me. Like, I've been forgiven. That's where his greatest comfort came and finally, time in my conclusion here, the commissioning. Verses 8 through 13, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
whom shall I send and who will go for us? Love this verse. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. And God said, okay. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. I want you to understand here that now this is judgment. This is judgment upon a sinful land. Okay, This is God saying pronounce judgment upon them. But here's the thing, within the judgment of God, we find here as, as God is referring Israel to a tree, a tree that was full of life, that has been broken down, that has been burned, that has been destroyed, and it's come to a place of a stump. Now the state of Israel is compared to a stump. You would see a stump and say, this tree has no hope. But the message here, verse 13, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a turbinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. There is a remnant that God has kept. There is a remnant that remains. That, that stump, don't take it for granted because the remnant comes from there. And there's a message of grace. In the midst of the judgment, there's, there's a message of salvation. And that stump would be if we had time, right, would be what? Jesse's seed. David's line. The Savior comes from that. Stump. The remnant. So, Isaiah 6 is of central importance for the entire message of the book of Isaiah. And it was in this encounter with the Lord that Isaiah's understanding of both God and his sin and his own mission is crystallized. Isaiah understands here who God is, he understands his sin, and he understands his mission. The woes of chapter 5 prepare Isaiah's call in the year of Isaiah's death. This is where Isaiah was called. Chapter 6 is where he receives his calling and his commissioning. And only once we have been cleansed ourselves can we speak of cleansing. Only once we have been forgiven ourselves can we speak of forgiveness. Only once we have received the grace of God can we speak to others about the grace of God. Cleansed people become commissioned people. Amen. Cleansed people become commissioned people. That's what happened with the apostles who Jesus chose. That's what happened with the woman at the well in John 4. That's what happened in Mark chapter 5 with the man who was 
demon-possessed and was set free. That's what happened with Isaiah. Cleansed people become commissioned people. So Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Bow your heads for me, please. There was a lot that we got through this morning. But I hope that you got it. And if you need to go back and listen to this message again, then, then do so. Because what God wanted Isaiah to see in Isaiah chapter 6, God wanted Israel to see. So he showed it to Isaiah. And what God wanted Isaiah to see in Isaiah chapter 6, God wants you and I to see in January 2021. He wants us to see clearly. He wants us to see his sovereignty. He wants us to see his holiness. When that happens, there is a spontaneous response where we see our sin. And once we see our sin for what it is, we long to be cleansed from that sin. And Isaiah was cleansed by the sin that he confessed with his mouth. And then we see that he was commissioned. God has never saved anybody just for the purpose of saving them. He hasn't saved you and I just for the purpose of saving us. If that were the case, then I think it would be well fitting that the moment that we were saved, that we would just go to heaven in, in a cloud. But the truth is, God still has us on earth. Why? Because He is commissioning us. He is calling us. So this morning I pray and I hope that you will see God as the ultimate king over the United States of America. That you would see him as the king seated upon his throne in this nation. I pray that you would see him as God, as your God. I pray that you would see your sin and I pray that you would confess it to him if you do not know the Lord then right now in your heart is a good place for you to confess your sin to him. I pray that by the Spirit you can see your sin today. I pray that the Spirit of God is convicting you today if you do not know him. I pray that you can see his holiness today if you do not know him. And even right here for you who do know him, in your heart you can take a moment and confess your sin before him as you're seeing him and being reminded of who he is in a fresh way. The holiness of God is the attribute of God above every other attribute. I pray that we as a church will see his holiness, confess our sin, then finally I pray that you would go, that you would, after your cleansing, that you would be commissioned.
Father, we want to be the faithful church. The faithful church. Father, I pray today that you would stir up within every individual in this place who knows you, between every individual in this place that, that's confessing their sin before you, that you are cleansing right now. I pray, Lord God Almighty, that you would place within every single individual in this room a desire to go and to proclaim. Thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you are calling us. Thank you, Lord, that Isaiah heard you saying, who will go for us and who shall I send? You've always been saying that. You're saying the same thing to us this morning. Who shall go for me? Whom can I send? And like Isaiah raised his hand, may we raise ours and say, here am I, Lord, send me. Send us, Father. Send us this week. Send us this month. Send us this year. I pray for divine appointments. And Lord, we will boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. We love you, Father, and we bless you. And we seal everything that was spoken and everything that was done in this place today. We seal it and we commend it into your hands. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.